Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz. Yes. I think we'll save our 80s uh, trivia for the end of the show so we don't have to subject our guest to our chit-chat about the 1980s because he probably (laughs) was born in the 1980s and won't appreciate us talking about the greatest decade of all time. So we'll save that for the end. All right. So um, today, for the first half of the show, welcome Happy Hour listeners. We are so pleased to have with us Jason Foster, who is the founder of Empower Oversight. He is the formerly chief investigative counsel for Senate Judiciary and Senator Chuck Grassley. They are, he and his partner, Tristan Levitt, um, also co-founder of uh, Empower Oversight, I believe, They are the ones who are working with the key IRS whistleblower, Gary Shapley, representing him and really responsible for blowing up the entire Hunter Biden, not just the plea deal of the diversion agreement, but the entire what looks like now collusion between Biden's DOJ and uh, Hunter's defense team. So, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If you want to talk a little bit first about your organization and then all the latest breaking news um, about the Hunter Biden scandal, Hunter and Joe Biden scandal, DOJ scandal, Merrick Garland scandal, and uh, what we uh, some breaking news I think you have for us today. Sure. So um, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, and thanks for giving us a chance to talk about our organization. Um, uh, one of the, you know, one of our goals when we, uh, I launched it in uh, 2021, uh, in the summer of 2021. And one of the goals, uh, you know, when you're launching a new organization is to, is to at least let people know that you're out there and you exist and you're a place that uh, folks can go to get advice, uh, you know, before they blow the whistle. And that is key for people who are looking for help. Um you know, I try to encourage people and teach people to get advice before you act, um, because just running to the press or, uh, you know, um, having uh, some even internal whistleblowing, if you don't do it right um, and you don't do it to the right audience and you don't do it in the right way, unfortunately, the the laws are complicated and you can get tripped up and you can uh, you can get yourself in trouble. So we exist to help people um make protected disclosures in a smart way, in a way that's legal, in a way that makes sure that the uh, oversight authorities, um, you know, will will have to do something about it. And that's one thing that we do that's a little bit different from some of the other groups is we also, our goal is to focus on making sure that there's actual follow-up. You know, we, too often what happens is, you know, what motivates people to blow the whistle is they see something wrong and they want to speak out about it not because they want to speak out about it, you know, just for the sake of doing so or, you know, for for any selfish reason. The reason they want to speak out about it is because they want it to be fixed. And that's, you know, that's the prime motivation. I get most whistleblowers just can't sit back and watch wrongdoing and and stay silent even if it means risking their career. So, um studies show that the the, the biggest reason people choose not to blow the whistle is that they are afraid it, it, even more so than being afraid of retaliation. They're actually afraid that nobody it's not going to make a difference. Um, so the point is, obviously, why risk your career if it's not going to make a difference? And a lot of the other whistleblower groups that are out there that we've worked with for years, um, you know, when I was on Capitol Hill and working for Chuck Grassley, uh, you know, most of them are left of center and most of them focus a lot of time and energy, which is a good thing. And I'm not criticizing it. You know, they spend a lot of time and energy working on whistleblower policy. 
uh, and working on individual whistleblower cases where they're fighting, you know, the retaliation. But what tends to happen is, um, you know, these disputes become all about the whistleblower. Is the whistleblower credible? Is, you know, what did the whistleblower do wrong? And that's uh, and you have to fight those fights, obviously, to help protect the whistleblower. But what what most whistleblowers want is I want you to help make sure that somebody does something about what I'm reporting. The whole reason that we have whistleblower protection laws is so that management and oversight authorities, management of the agencies and outside oversight authorities can make sure that the problem is actually addressed. Um, and so we have a focus on, you know, sort of the government accountability part of it, making sure that folks on Capitol Hill follow up, making sure that folks in the IG communities follow up and holding those outside uh, and, and management and holding those folks accountable to actually do something. Keep the we, we try to keep the focus on the underlying disclosures that the whistleblower made uh, as opposed to focusing on, you know, the minutia of the employment law and the retaliation against them. I mean, those things are important and we have, you know, we you know, Tristan is an, um, my partner who's president of Empower Oversight now. You know, he's an expert in the personnel law, and he can absolutely help do that. But, you know, we, we also want to put the focus on actually getting someone to do something about correcting the problems that whistleblowers report. You know, Jason, I know Liz and I were watching the hearing with Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler, who testified the IRS whistleblowers, the main case agents or investigators on Hunter Biden and I know we were just in awe at their courage. I mean, I don't think people appreciate how the system, I mean, they have retaliated against other whistleblowers. We've heard that from the FBI whistleblowers for January 6th. Um, but watching, I mean, going directly at the president and his son, his family, his DOJ, um, I don't think people appreciate the level of courage that it takes to do what those two men not just said to the committee privately, the transcripts, but then testify publicly, just uh, real heroes. I mean, real heroes. So I commend you, but especially them and their families for, for taking this on, because Hunter Biden, as we now know, would have skated. And we could talk a little bit about the articles that came out over the weekend disclosing the email back and forth. Uh, that looked like it was a done deal before your client came forward. Yeah, well, it was actually he started blowing the whistle uh, long before the plea deal was even, um, you know, on the table. He was blowing the whistle. His his goal was not to affect the outcome, to be clear. Right. I mean, he um, Gary saw deviations from what would normally be the practice in any other investigation of any of anybody else whose name was so Gary, you know, Smith Gary instead of just, Biden. Just so our listeners know, Gary was the lead IRS investigator on the Hunter Biden. He was the supervisor. He was the supervisor of a group of 12 elite agents. Uh, he was not the case agent. He's the supervisor of the case agent. Um, right. And uh, Joe Ziegler is the other whistleblower, the case agent. He's the one who uh, testified alongside Gary at the uh, oversight hearing, uh, the public oversight hearing recently. Um, but Gary's journey to whistleblowing started before Joe's and Gary's, you know, Gary was in what he calls this uh, red line meeting on October 7th of 2022, where he witnessed, you know, senior FBI and IRS officials being told by David Weiss, the, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, that he did not, in fact, uh, he was not, in fact, the final authority on whether charges would be filed or not uh, in the case, which was completely different from what they had been led to believe as agents working on the case and completely different from what the public and Congress had been led to believe by the testimony of 
uh, Attorney General Garland. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's when he started his journey. And, you know, October of 2022, um, there were mo- there was months of preparation, right, for him to blow the whistle internally. He blew the whistle internally at the IRS IG. Um, he we helped take him to the DOJ IG because a lot of the misconduct really was in their jurisdiction. Um, you know, and then eventually we wrote to Congress and said, you know, we'd like to because ultimately, on March 1st, um, Mr. Garland sort of doubled down on what he had said previously, um, even after, uh, you know, he really should have known better if his staff had done appropriate work. It wasn't like internally it was a secret that Gary, you know, had raised these issues that had, had he had pointed out internally that this was not consistent with Attorney General Garland's previous testimony um, and all the public statements. So. You know, it, every we were all shocked when when the attorney general sort of doubled down on March 1st in his answers to Senator Grassley and basically said, I mean, that that's after the case had already been taken to California and D.C. to uh, Biden appointed U.S. attorneys um, and he's and had been turned down. And he's, you know, and Garland just doubled down and said, no, 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 he, he has authority to bring it anywhere he wants, which just was just factually not consistent with what had occurred. Jason, can you explain a little bit about that timeline? So um, the October meeting is key. I think that there's subpoenas now for everyone involved in that meeting. But also going back to then how Gary Shapley and others, or David Weiss actually, uh, went to the U.S. D.C. U.S. Attorney Matthew Graves, who is a Biden appointee, as you pointed out, and the a U.S. Attorney for, I believe, Central District of California, for for what specific tax crimes, if you could just explain a little bit what Hunter Biden actually did. It's not like, oops, I forgot to sign my 1040. I mean, this was a major cover up of his income from Burisma and other overseas um, sources. So if you could walk through those charges a little bit and then how they went to those two U.S. attorneys and they were yeah, basically it, told decline. No, we won't prosecute or investigate. Right. right. Exactly. So in this in the. Um, in the spring of 2022, um, the uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware was fully on board with charging with the investigators, agreed with the investigators' recommendation, and there's 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 written confirmation of this in the documents provided to Ways and Means and attached to Gary's transcript of his testimony with Ways and Means. But the um, uh, and this contradicts the the narrative that Abby Lowell is now spinning that somehow you know the the chapter one of this story is that uh, oh there was nothing there and only because of pressure from Gary and Republicans on the Hill did did anything happen. That's actually chapter two or three of the story. Chapter one of the story is in the spring of 2022. Um, David Weiss was telling the investigators and uh, even Leslie Wolf, who had been obstruction, who had been an obstructionist in the in the earlier stages of the investigation, you know, despite all of her attempts at at obstruction, Gary and Joe had put together uh, evidence that they, the prosecutors agreed, um, showed felony tax evasion for 2014 and 2015 because and, and it's not even complicated tax evasion. Gary's described this in other settings as essentially, you know, this is day one of the academy, right? This is this is the, your first class. This is tax evasion 101, characterizing income as a loan as opposed to income, right? That's what he that's that's what they say that uh, Hunter Biden did. Um, 
you know, so the the uh, the the payments from Barisma are treated two different ways. They're treated for, by Barisma as salary on their books, but they're treated as a loan by Hunter on his organization's books. And so that's just classic tax evasion. He's never and to this day, uh, you know, he's never amended those returns that we know of, at least up until May when uh, before Gary and Joe were taken off the case. Um uh, we know at least up to that point he had never amended those returns, and nothing in the public plea uh, draft plea deal uh, seemed to require him to amend those returns to actually declare and pay taxes on that income. So there, so there was hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax due and owing on the Barisma income, uh, which was hidden from by you know was falsely characterized as a loan and hidden from by Hunter from his accountants. Um, and discovered later, and he was instructed to that he needed to go back and fix that, and he never did. So, um, so you know, obviously the connection between the Burisma income and the controversy around the first Trump impeachment, you know, means that there was a, a major incentive for uh, the D.C. establishment to make sure that there wasn't too much scrutiny on those years and that income. Um, so, so that's what that's what happened in March uh, or in the spring of 2022. Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office is completely on board with bringing these charges, and um, the investigators thought that uh, that that's what they were preparing for, and they they did prepare. They started preparing for that and getting discovery ready for trial, um, and they had to pr- the 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 information was presented to D.C. because the D.C. D.C. is where venue lies for the charges. They could not charge him in Delaware because Delaware isn't where he was living at the time, not where he filed the tax return. So they needed to charge in. Uh, the District of Columbia. Now, that presents an immediate conflict of interest because the U.S. attorney in D.C., unlike uh, Weiss, was appointed by Biden. So it would be one thing. I, I frankly don't understand why they didn't just you know, um, leave it to a career person in the D.C. office. At least that would have then they would have at least been able to say you know, oh, well, you know, the there's no conflict because we didn't have the, the political appointee make the decision. Um, but what actually happened, according to Gary and Joe's testimony, is it was presented to D.C. and D.C. was initially also in favor of bringing the charges when it was brought up to the first assistant to Matthew Graves. It was only after Graves himself reviewed the case that it that they changed their tune and all of a sudden it was, no, you can't bring these charges. And then – um, you know, in the October 7th meeting in 2022 is when Gary learns from Weiss that that had, you know, that they had been blocked by Graves and that, you know, he was he said, well, then there's basically nothing I can do about it. And he indicated that he was going to let the statute of limitations lapse, which was ending at the which was lapsing at the end of October uh, or I think in November um, right. of 2022. And Matthew Graves, Matthew Graves is the D.C. U.S. attorney, as you point out, Biden appointee, but he is uh, handling all the January 6th prosecutions investigation. He's still arresting and charging people every week for, you know, walking into the Capitol more than two and a half years ago. 
His wife, Fatima, runs a major nonprofit in Washington, D.C. She's been to the Biden White House at least 30 times since her husband became D.C. U.S. attorney. Major conflicts there. Um, so just to add some context to who Matthew Graves is, he's just another, you know, par- political operative disguised as a federal prosecutor protecting uh, the Bidens and, you know, punishing their political foes. So I I think it's so fascinating that his name popped up considering what he's been up to for the past almost two years since he was a confirmed D.C. U.S. attorney. Jason, I have a question. You had mentioned earlier that you took your whistleblowers to the IRS IG and also the DOJ IG. Uh, with their Correct. concerns. So what were the what was the consequences of that? I mean, those are to those offices inside the agencies are there specifically to, <clears throat> you know, as a check um, to examine stuff like this. So did that go anywhere? Or what happened? Or is that still ongoing? Uh, well, it's hard to tell. I believe uh, that both have open ongoing investigations, uh, but they, of course, don't tell, you know, they don't, they won't confirm that to us. Uh, but reading between the lines, it certainly sounds, well, I guess in the letter to Congress recently, Mr. Horowitz has identified a jurisdictional issue because the, uh, but, and they, he described what they're doing right now as an assessment. Um, there's all kinds of things they can do during an assessment, though, and I have reason to believe that they've, they've actually interviewed witnesses. I certainly hope they have interviewed all the witnesses uh, that the House just recently subpoenaed, uh, right? They, they should have by now, if they were doing their job, they should have interviewed everybody who was in the room and could corroborate what Gary heard um, Weiss say that contradicted Garland's congressional testimony. Um, you know, of course, Gary already – it's already corroborated. Gary wrote it down contemporaneously. He then went back to his office and sent an email to his boss and said, this is what I heard him say. Is this is this correct? And his boss replied – uh, yes, that's correct. His boss is one of the people, four people who got a subpoena from from the House. Um, by the way, they didn't subpoena everybody in the meeting yet because, of course, they haven't subpoenaed um, Weiss uh, or his first assistant. Um, so uh, they just inter- they just subpoenaed the IR- the two IRS and the two FBI officials um, in addition to Gary, um, who were there. So um, but. Uh, yeah, I believe we went to we went to the DOJ IG specifically in February. He'd already gone to the uh, IRS IG in January, but we went to the DOJ IG because most of the misconduct here is is actually um, you know DOJ misconduct. Um, the scope of what the IRS IG should be looking at would be um, the retaliation against Gary, which occurred after he. Um, uh, after he was blowing the whistle internally, he made multiple protected disclosures internally. He had documented deviations from normal uh, normal criminal protocols uh, all throughout the investigation. And, of course, there was the blow up meeting on October 7th, uh, after which they knew he was, um, you know, he was not happy and, and thought that there was uh, misconduct going on. Um so, uh, so the scope of the what the IRS is doing would be mainly the retaliation piece. Uh, and the mismanagement piece of just the fact that, you know, they, 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 most of the IRS leadership was basically hands off on this and left everything to Gary. Gary was meeting the one meeting directly with Weiss, you know, not Gary's supervisors, uh, which was somewhat unusual. Um, it, but just because they didn't want any part of it. I think everybody knew from the beginning, you know, there's a saying in law enforcement, you know, little cases, little problems, big cases, big problems, no cases, no problems. Um, and I think there might have been a little bit of that <laughs> that dynamic going on here. Uh, you know, they see this is going to be a big controversial case and they don't want to touch it. So they just left it all to Gary. Um, 
So, but the IG uh, jurisdictional issue that's been written about in the last couple of days with an exchange of letters from the IG and and Capitol Hill is uh, is a real potential problem. As I understand it, the IG has jurisdiction to look at the potential false statements to Congress by the Attorney General and by Weiss in his letters to Congress, which evolved over time. They're very different after the whistleblower testimony came out than what he said before the whistleblower testimony came out. Um, and this is um, this is Inspector General Michael Horowitz, who yes. has conducted many internal investigations, especially, and he he um, produced the major report into RussiaGate, FISAGate, and also Andrew McCabe sent criminal referral to him. So, I mean, yes. I think he's a pretty stand-up guy. I know there's some criticism of him. It's probably legitimate, but, um, you know, I don't know what your view is of him, but I always viewed him as a pretty pretty much a, a stand-up guy. Well, I think he I think he tries to call balls and strikes in good faith and then and and the thing that I appreciate about him and his office is that even when they're even when they're not willing to, you know, to make what I think is an obvious judgment call, um, you know, to criticize something uh, or to have a finding of misconduct, they at a minimum, unlike a lot of other IGs, and I'm kind of grading on a curve here because you know all I, you know, <laughs> right. all IGs are not equal, <laughs> right. uh, and I and I'm kind of grading him, you know, in comparison to other IGs, he's much better in that he'll at least lay out all the facts um, and when and and won't shrink from them or won't hide them. Uh, so you know, even if he doesn't. Um, characterize those facts in a way that you think, well, obviously, you know, you put A, B and C together, connect the dots. This is intentional misconduct. You know, he might not go that far because, I mean, who knows? I mean, he has, runs an office of 400 people. You know, they probably, you know, they're not monolithic. They have different, you know, different opinions. Some of them are probably, um, uh, you know, are, are, are less inclined to, to find misconduct on certain people. So, I mean, he has to manage the office and I get that, but at least the facts aren't hidden. And like so in the in the FISA report, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that that he lays out that Congress, you know, can follow up on. And I mean, and even before that, when Tristan and I were working on the Fast and Operation Fast and Furious gun running um, scandal, you know, in uh, 10 years ago, um, almost more than that now, um, uh, you know, we we laid the the IG did a very comprehensive and good report on that as well and added to the story but of course you know because congress had gone first and gone faster congress can always move faster than the IGs and uh that's what needs to happen here uh just i think just like in fast and furious we need a comprehensive report that and, and access to documents uh by congress first so that so that everything has to be laid out and you know i'm sure horowitz will come along and do that as much as he can eventually um, but again, there's this jurisdictional issue, which people should understand, which is the DOJ IG is the only inspector general in the entire federal government that isn't allowed to look at attorney misconduct. There's a special carve out um, for for prosecutors <laughs> at sure, DOJ. <laughs> they are they are immune from from IG uh, scrutiny when it comes to their official duties as lawyers. So it doesn't mean they're like if they commit time and attendance fraud or if they lie to Congress, for example, um, you know, then he can still look at it. But if it has to do with their judgment calls as attorneys, um, you know, like, for example, you know, Leslie Wolf deciding to call uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers and let them know that there was this plan to subpoena them uh, uh to subpoena them first and then execute a search warrant if they didn't comply with the subpoena by getting documents out of a certain storage building. Like, you know, 
according to Gary's testimony, she tipped them off about that. That's something right. that they're that they're going to argue is, well, you know, prosecutors communications with defense counsel and what they choose to communicate. That's a that's a that's a legal decision. That's a decision, you know, in her capacity as an attorney. And so they're probably going to say this has to go to DOJ Office of Professional Responsibility and they have exclusive jurisdiction over, uh, you know, and they can can tell Horowitz that he can't he can't look at that. Now, that's and a who's huge run, problem. Who's running that these days? Sally Yates? Uh, Maybe Rod Rosenstein, you know, somebody who's no. <laughs> fraudulent FISA application, and you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it's some dandy like that. <laughs> no, I actually don't. It's it's very non-transparent, and they don't put out reports like the IG does, and that's one of the problems with the sure. process. Um, uh, they're not nearly as transparent, and they're not responsive at all to congressional requests. I actually don't know off the top of my head right now who is the head of that, but at one time. Uh, the last time I had interacted with them, I, it was actually somebody who used to be a detailee to Senator Leahy's office hmm. uh, was running that. Yeah. Great. Um, so um, so but the issue is so the but the department regulations actually allow uh, for Horowitz to ask for permission to do an investigation that involves attorney misconduct, notwithstanding the fact that uh, normally it's supposed to be done by DOJ OPR. Um, and my understanding is that that has been – there has been multiple requests for that in the past because – I mean so some high-profile matters that have been limited from IG scrutiny because of this include the Ted Stevens prosecution where there was misconduct and withholding exculpatory evidence uh, from Senator Stevens' uh, lawyers, um, the Jeffrey Epstein uh, sweetheart deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, is another one that hasn't been able to be fully investigated by the IG because of this jurisdictional problem. You have Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill, uh, including uh, Chairman Durbin on the Senate Judiciary Committee, along with Grassley and uh, Senator Lee, have a bill uh, that would that would change this, that would give jurisdiction over attorney misconduct to the to the Inspector General. Um, that bill has passed out of the Judiciary Committee. 21 to 1 last year. It has passed the House. And Jason, uh, who is the one Republican senator who voted against that? So Tom, well, when they stood up to um, do a unanimous consent request earlier this year uh, or during this Congress, um, uh, the senators who support the bill who I just named all stood up and tried to pass the bill by unanimous consent on the Senate floor. And Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas is the one senator who objected. Oh. And why is that? So it would be law. It would be law yeah. now if Senator Cotton. Well, I mean, you'd have to ask Senator <laughs> Cotton's office. I mean, he, and he gave a speech. People can go and watch the speech. But oh, I mean, okay. in my in my experience, um, there has the, this this bill to correct this problem has been around for a long, long time. And there's always one senator, no matter, you know, and it sometimes is a different senator. Um, uh, but there's always one senator that at the last minute, if it's about to pass or be attached to some must pass legislation like the like the National Defense Authorization Bill or something like that. There's always one senator who will carry DOJ's water and, you know, make sure that their prosecutors are protected from scrutiny by the IG. So um, so I think it's important for Congress to ask. And they've asked some of these. They've asked the questions, you know, sort of um, they've sort of come at it sideways a little bit and they've asked uh the inspector general sort of to clarify what the scope of his investigation is and if there are any impediments. But I mean, I think he should specifically be asked and required to answer. Have you asked under the regulations that exist now? Have you asked? He has to ask the deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco. 
Have you asked Lisa Monaco for, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Have, right. Have you asked Lisa Monaco for permission to examine the, the, the attorney misconduct in this case? If you haven't, why haven't you? Uh, if you have, what was her answer? When did you ask? And if she has said no, that you can't, then she should be made to explain why the inspector general shouldn't be allowed to investigate this in a more independent um, and arm's length way than the than OPR would, who reports to her. Right. The inspector general doesn't report to her. Um, and uh, there, you know, there should be tough questions for her about why uh, she won't allow the inspector general to fully investigate this, because. Without that, you know, I don't see him being able to require Leslie Wolf uh, to come in and explain to him in a way that the public might eventually see, as opposed to an OPR report, which the public would never see, um, why she made those decisions that con- consistently over a period of years always benefited the defendant, Hunter Biden. Well, um, I think that's just another fascinating wrinkle. Lisa Monaco, a longtime Obama loyalist, former chief of staff to FBI director Robert Mueller. She was one of the architects of the Russia collusion hoax. Um, you know, she is very was very tight with Barack Obama. I'm sure she's one of the Biden regime um, apparatchiks who regularly visits Barack Obama at his um, Calorama mansion in Washington, D.C. So I would love to see I, I really hope that they pursue that. Uh, that line of inquiry. Well, one of the things that one of the things that we learned recently in the Politico and New York Times articles, uh, actually, I think this detail was in the Politico article this weekend, was that it was actually someone from her office uh, who uh, met Clark, who, 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 yeah, who Chris Clark, the, the lawyer for Hunter Biden, when he was asking for who do I appeal to? Um, you know, I don't want my, you know, I, I, I want someone higher up above Weiss that I can appeal to. And contrary again, once again, to Garland's testimony to Congress that, you know, there wouldn't be anybody um, overseeing Weiss, that Weiss, the buck stopped with Weiss and Weiss was the one making the decisions. Contrary to that assurance, they actually uh, set a meeting with Lisa Monaco's assistant, Brad Weinsheimer, <laughs> um, on on April 26th. On April 26th, which is seven days after Mark Lytle, my co-counsel, sent a letter up to Congress indicating that he had a whistleblower that wanted to uh, talk about unmitigated conflicts of interest and, and preferential treatment for for a um, – uh, we didn't name Hunter Biden at the time uh, but because uh, we couldn't, but um, uh, and we didn't even know who it was at the time, uh, but um, – uh, you know, for a politically sensitive investigation is seven days after Mark Lytle sends that letter up to the various committees of jurisdiction on the Hill that uh, Brad Weinsheimer is meeting with Clark and Weiss. Uh, and then uh, on, I believe it's May 11th, um, two weeks later, uh, Weinsheimer is sending an email to Clark saying, OK, follow up on next steps with wow. Weiss. And then what happens on May 15th, four days after that, Gary and Joe are removed from the case, and um, the same day, Leslie Wolf reaches out to Clark and offers a deal that would require only the diversion agreement on the gun charge and no tax charges at all, not even misdemeanors. Boy, if that doesn't have Lisa Monaco's dirty, grubby fingerprints all over it, I I don't know what. I mean, she is one of the most corrupt government officials that we could possibly have in government, and she's running the Department of Justice. 
Um, well, inter- so. interspersing the timeline of the, you know, the revelations that the defense counsel shared with the with these media outlets over the weekend, with what we know happened in the timeline of of Gary and Joe's whistleblowing, um, you know, I, I I'm not sure why they think that helps them. Well, yeah, I do know actually. I think because they're because Labby Lowell is trying to spin a narrative that you know. Um, his client is being persecuted for political reasons, and it's only Republican pressure and pressure from the Hill, uh, i.e., you know, which is generated by the whistleblowers, of course, you know, the, is the only reason they were going to do anything. But again, as I said, that's not chapter one of the story. Chapter one of the story is back in the spring, Weiss was on board with charging felonies. So, so Jason, we, I know we've taken more of your time than we than we promised, but this is such a fascinating, and I just want to commend you. I know Liz and I for all of your work on this, your diligence, and especially uh, for Gary uh, Chapley, his courage. We are going to keep following this story. Where um, where can people find your organization if they want to donate to your whistleblower uh, organization or specifically to Gary Shapley? And um, where can people find you on social media and your organization? Sure. So um, if people want to support, we set up a special um, uh, law enforcement whistleblowers defense fund to help uh, folks uh, like Gary, Gary and others who may want to come forward. Um, and that is at defendwhistleblowers.com. Uh, and so that's separate from our general fund. Uh, if people want to support our organization more generally or just want to read about what we're up to uh, they can, or learn more about us and who we are and what we do, they can go to empoweroversight.org. Um, the media tab has all of our press releases and in case you missed it, it's on our media appearances and things like that. Um, and then there's you know, you can read about who on the leadership tab, who works for the organization, who works with us. Um, so those are the two main places to go. And of course, the, the social media that we're most active on is Twitter. Uh, and uh, um, our Twitter handles are linked in our bios on the website. So empoweroversight.org and defendwhistleblowers.com are the best places to go. That's great. Jason, thank you so much. And also, if people want to read the coverage, what we're referring to, those two articles over the weekend, the details, the exchanges, the emails, I think it was Politico and the Washington Post, correct? That got There's New York, New York Times. I'm New sorry, Times. New York Times. You know, see, right. Thank you. <laughs> I think, right, same thing, but I always mix them up. So, yes, thank you. Yeah. New York Times and Politico was pretty fascinating what they posted there. So, yeah. Jason, and we, we've, we've done a lot of commentary on our uh, social media about that, so um, – Yes, Just check us out on Twitter and you'll find you'll find all kinds of uh, details about that. We definitely will. Well, Jason, thank you so much. And we hope to have you, uh, you back Jason. again soon for an update. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Julie. <clears throat> wow. Every right. time I, I listen to I mean, I read those articles and every time I think about what happened, I get so outraged. <laughs> it's just so outrageous because there's literally no consequences for any of this behavior that's been going on for so long. And that's why I asked him about the IG, like, oh, there's, because that's what the IG is there for, you know, right. is to investigate these things. That's, that's the purpose so that we don't have these agencies going off the rails. And what happens when something gets sent to the IG? Well, nothing really. I mean, they write a report. Great. You know, so we're going to have another report. I mean, we have a lot of reports, right? We have we have a lot, plenty yeah. of reports. I mean, the I think the FISA is, report was like 540 pages. And, you know, but there's FISA report. There was all kinds of reports and reports also coming out of Congress from stuff that they've learned in their investigation, their weaponization investigations. And 
who's going to jail for this? Be, uh, you know, who's who's fired? Right. Has anyone been fired? Is anyone going to jail? And the idea that the DOJ IG can't investigate attorney misconduct. Well, what the hell is the IG for? Exactly. What other, what other misconduct is happening at the at the DOJ? Are they ordering again, like, like too much coffee from Starbucks and they're expensing it? I mean, come on. Well, I mean, how many attorneys, top officials in the DOJ signed four fraudulent FISA applications to a secret federal court? Every single one of them was an attorney. Right. Well, and, and they got because everybody deals. is an attorney who were. I mean, that's gig. that's literally what they do. It's 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 a joke. And I mean, I don't know why Tom Cotton stopped like objected. I think he probably drew the short stick and it's like a yeah. failure theater thing, right? Where like every time this comes up, it sounds like they put on a production, like, look, at, look, we are with you. And then somebody, you know, pisses in the Wheaties and it was just Tom Cotton that time. Well, and, and let's remember Tom Cotton also voted last year in the omnibus to give DOJ a 10% raise more than $3 billion he handed over to Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco. He also voted to confirm Lisa Monaco as deputy attorney general. And I'm pretty sure he voted for Merrick Garland. I'll have to go back and look. Maybe he didn't. But, you know, he's just another he's a fraud. Tom Cotton is another fraud. What has he done? What has he said? What has he initiated with any of this corruption in DOJ? He goes on Sean Hannity. You know, he talks a good game. He accomplishes nothing. And now he stood in the way of people like Senator Durbin, who actually, it sounds like, wants accountability. And he's the guy who who derailed it. That's really I, a change. I just think I just think he drew the short stick that like every time this is a, a thing that we see frequently when they want they don't want to take the hard vote. So someone is the sacrificial lamb, right? So nobody has to answer a question from a reporter or a constituent. Hey, why'd you vote against this? So they set it up so that that somebody is is the patsy and they take the hit for stopping it. And that way, all the other elected officials don't have to go back and answer. Right. Or they don't look like the Republicans are against this or the Democrats are against it. it's all a setup. It's very disturbing. I think people are getting really, really fed up because the more we learn about the Hunter Biden situation and how grossly unfair and how there's a totally different standard of justice for Hunter and there's no punishment for that. You know, I know we've talked about this, but the gun charge one, I mean, people are in jail for gun charge shit like that. But, yep. you know, the idea and of course, the Democrats, including Joe Biden, are are very happy to talk about gun crime and gun violence and prosecuting gun crime and we need more laws and you know but then where's the outrage on the fact that they would pass they would you know kind of give him a, a get out of jail free card on his gun charge so it's just a bunch of hypocrites and terrible stuff so let's um talk speaking about, of hypocrites let's yeah. go to the debate <laughs> yeah so last night was the first uh, Republican primary presidential candidate debate. It was at 9 p.m. on Fox. It was hosted by Fox. And at the same time, Donald J. Trump made an appearance. Well, he had er taped it earlier, but Tucker released his interview with Donald Trump at the same time. And of course, everybody knows Trump did not participate in the debate. So that was interesting. It looks like Hunter, I mean, excuse me, Tucker's interview with Trump got a lot of traffic. Now, I checked the way Twitter 
does their metrics on that stuff. And basically it counts as a view if you watch like two seconds. So I, I don't know if there were whatever they're saying, like 200 million people watched, you know, from stem to stern or whatever, like the whole thing, right? Maybe someone popped in to do a looky-loo. I don't know. But clearly the Trump interview uh, got a lot of attention. And then I think it's got 190 right now on Thursday morning, 191 million views. I'd be curious to know how much of those are full views, but still very respectable. Tucker is getting more viewers on his Twitter stuff than he got nightly on Fox. So obviously, and he has a new logo. He's got yeah, an he has a new logo. logo Tucker on X. Cool. Yeah, very cool. And very cool. And so Tucker won like that Fox fight, right? Like Tucker's the one who came out on top for that. And so. What did you think of the debate? I thought the debate, not every candidate, because there's so many idiots that have thrown in their ring, but like there were nine people, I think. There was Asa, the dude from North Dakota, whose nobody's rem- name can the nobody hell is remember. that guy? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that dude. Then you had Nikki Haley, Vivek, that shithead Chris Christie, uh, that DeSantis. <laughs> And Pence. And Pence, yep. Um, And I just thought it was was not a great debate. I mean, it just wasn't – it got off the rails a couple times because several people wanted to, you know, kind of make their – have their moment. You know, Chris Christie was just – he's useless. I mean, I I do think the public is hungry for a discussion of the most important issues, like a real like UFOs. Well, (laughs) yeah. What was that question about? I don't look. I don't know. I just was like, all right, we're going to do that. Um, So people want that. But when you have that many people on the stage and then you have these sort of carnival barker type actions by like Chris Christie, who obviously he had practiced a line he directed at Vivek or he called said he sounded like chat GPT because, you know, Vivek is like, he is great in media. I think he's obviously very talented on the meet when he does media appearance, he's extremely smart. He does know what to say. He knows what people care about and he knows what to say. I just think he isn't, he's not really there to run for president. He's auditioning for veep or something else. Um, so that gives him, I mean, I think he, he stole the show though. I mean, in my opinion, and they were all starting to gang up on him. I think he really stole the show. And look, I've, I've seen, I've actually followed Vivek twice in speaking appearances, one at CPAC and then another one, I think it was a judicial watch or something conference. And I mean, he is an electric speaker. There's no doubt about it. Great. I had to follow him twice and I would go up there and be like, okay, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring you all down now. <laughs> people get up and like walk out, then they like people are just leaving. You're like, wait, they're like don't slitting go. their wrists, right? Exactly. But I'm important so. too. Um, he's very, he's excellent in the media. He knows how to talk about the important issues in a way that really resonates with people. He cuts right to the chase. Right. And 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 in that sense, he's very Trumpy. He's very. That, I think, was one of the most appealing things about Trump as a candidate in 2016 is he was just saying the stuff that people were not allowed to say. And last night, I think that was easily or most clearly seen when they asked about the Ukraine 
about yes. funding Ukraine. And Vivek yes. was like, no. He was like, just no. You know, and everybody else had like a weaselly, like a kind of, well, you know, we want other countries to pony up too. And that's not the question. The question is, why are we sending all this money to a foreign country that has absolutely nothing to do with us when our own borders are being invaded, right? And again, Vivek knows how to talk about the issues really in a way that makes it is very clarifying, you know, and not in the gray area, which politicians like the gray area because it allows them to weasel. Is that is that your impression too, Julie? On the Ukraine issue or just yeah, like the way that he cuts through. He knows how to talk about the issues. Yes. And I mean, you contrast his answer on that to basically everyone else's, especially what a what a washed up neocon is Nikki Haley. Oh, like she's that's awful. The, awful. That's the only time she got upset and enter, not about, you know, the country falling apart, the weaponization of the Department of Justice. open. she she is like infuriated that people would question yeah. sending money and possibly and more ammo and more military uh you know artillery equipment etc like what is that that that's crazy to me but um no he has a way of just speaking i think directly to the heart of people's issues he understands the cultural war that we are in yeah um and you know not just okay there's policies yes ron DeSantis can speak to the policy changes he's made in florida but if you can't communicate that in an impassioned way that really resonates and connects with people, policy doesn't matter. I mean, it just doesn't. We, it, it, this is still a personality-driven business, politics, obviously. So yeah, I mean, people I do, are over – I think people are just over the, uh, you know, dancing around and vague questions on Ukraine. Right. People yep. just – it's like Ukraine, no. It's just no. That's it. No. There's no qualifications. There's no, well, we can give money if other countries give money or, well, we need to be audit them. No, just no. People are over, especially because at the same time that we are giving so much money to Ukraine, we have so many problems here in the U.S., right? We, I mean, the most obvious one is that we're not even protecting our border, but yet Nikki Haley is indignant about Ukraine's border, about Ukraine's sovereignty. But also, people are in financial distress right now. The housing market is a hot mess. Interest rates are higher than ever. We've got a real crime problem. There's so many issues that are more important to people here. And yet, the neocons are so generous with the resources to go to another country. It's just nobody's interested in coming up like there's no good reason to go into you, you know, to continue to throw money at Ukraine. There's no good reason. And people are know that they're over it. So I thought that was like the one one really great moment for him. I mean, I think Vivek did very well. But I mean, that was, I think, the most stark contrast between him. And honestly, I I liken him to Trump. The way Trump came out yes. and just said stuff out loud that nobody was allowed to say and that people were and that politicians were, you know, wiggling around because they didn't want to have to be forced to follow up and take action on what they had said. So they wanted to keep it vague. So that's my thing. Oh, I forgot. Tim Scott was there, too. Do you even remember that? I don't I just remember <laughs> Tim Scott was there. No. And I mean, Tim Scott seems like a decent guy. You know, he's just what has he really accomplished again as a senator? Seems like a nice man, but way out of his depth. Yeah. Um, 
so I know there's some back and forth. I think he gave a pretty impassioned uh, comment defense about abortion. So that was sort of interesting is that none of this is going to move the needle. I think the only person who helped himself really was Vivek Ramaswamy. DeSantis, I at times forgot he was there. And I think he really hurt himself. Now this image, this clip that's going viral, when they asked, Brett Baer asked, you know, if Donald Trump, if he's convicted, you've all signed a pledge to support yeah. the GOP nominee. Will you still support Donald Trump? And Vivek, of course, was the first one to shoot his hand up. And DeSantis kind of looked around, looked at Vivek and then like halfway raised his hand. That was that's not going to play well, I think, for him. I think that DeSantis is listening to strategists about how to win a general election. When you are campaigning to win a primary for a party, you it, it's different than when you're trying to campaign to win a general election. And a lot of candidates do get caught up when they are trying to get a primary nomination because they are held to what they said during the primary for the general, and that can hurt, so, especially when you're trying to appeal to the base. I think that DeSantis is trying to run as if he's trying to win a general election and not take these positions that are super important to the base. And I think that yes. that's what he's that's what he's doing when he looked around and was like, you know, like he's kind of caught off guard, like, uh oh, you know, what do I what do I say, you know, about that? You know, am I go along with the crowd or? Do I, you know, become like, I think wasn't Chris Christie didn't raise his hand. Um, that's not good company for sure. But the, right. I, I, ag I agree with you. I think, I think DeSantis didn't, didn't stand out. He, he didn't really um, distinguish himself. There was, he, he stayed out of the infighting. I do think that there's a theory in debates that you want to lay low, right? That you don't want to, um, you want to be in the middle, and just keep surviving. I think that there's a theory about that where you don't you don't bomb, but you don't be a star either. You just kind of survive for the next right. one. And I almost I think that may have been DeSantis's strategy. Where I think that's know, a good strategy if you're the front runner. I don't think it's a good strategy no. if you were you know trailing. the heir apparent to to the MAGA movement and your campaign is on its third or fourth reset. And you're you've got a guy who's center stage, literally center stage, who is now overtaking in some polls your second place um, position. I don't know who's advising. I don't even know if he's advisable. He I get the sense that it, you could put the best advisors in front of him and he's not going to listen. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's a I lot just, of candidates have that. You're right. I mean, I think you're right, Julian. There's a lot of candidates that do have that problem where they sure. think they're the smartest person in the room. And, you know, they pay people a lot of money to come in and advise them and then ignore everything because they think they know better. So I think and DeSantis is very smart, man. He knows it. And so that very well may be. And look, he has he spent the last 15 years running for office. I mean, he he has run for, I think, four or five offices. So. You know, maybe he does. And he's he's won a few and he's I think he dropped out of the U.S. Senate race when Marco Rubio said he was going to run for reelection or there was something going on there. But I mean, he is a professional campaigner. This is what the guy has done. And he won, you know, the Florida governorship and then immediately announced he was running for president. And he's been running ever since. So maybe he 
he fancies himself a political campaign genius. But But it's so different to win a statewide election in Florida than it is to win a general election. And again, like because Trump, I think, is such a lightning rod that the Trump related questions, which include J6, they people like, again, DeSantis, who has a view who is running like a general election, is worried about what the non-Republicans are going to think of what he says about January 6th and whether he would support Donald Trump, you know, whether he would whether he can come out publicly and say, yes, I would support Donald Trump if he's the nominee or whatever. And, you know, that's that's where you do need a really good campaign strategist and not not just your own, you know, your own thing. But all in all, I just thought the debate was kind of a mess. I I really wish that almost all those people weren't even on the stage, that they were taking up time with Nikki Haley again, Tim Scott. I just don't that the dude from North Dakota Asa uh, Hutchinson. Asa Hutchinson. Go away. Chris Christie. Please. What are these? Get out. Or Pence. Oh, Pence was awful. He was driving me nuts. I I never liked him. I've never liked never. Mike Pence. And I really don't like him. And he's talking about all the, you know, when he tells his little sob story about how he felt he did the right thing. And, oh, shut up. You know, you're you know, talking to people that know what really happened. <laughs> so. That's right. We know what really happened. We know that you're a liar and a snake. And so is your chief of staff, Mark Short. And I'm going to I'm going to do this on Twitter either today, uh, either Thursday or Friday. Go back to Mark Short's testimony to the January 6th committee. They intentionally delayed the release of that memo that they had been working on for at least two days And they issued it at one o'clock when the joint session started on January 6th. They knew Mike Pence was not going to do this. They were working on it at 930 in the morning on January 6th when Donald Trump called Pence for the first time that day. They didn't tell him they were working on this memo. They didn't tell him until an 1130 phone call. And then they release it at one o'clock when the joint session starts. They are snakes. They are very deceptive. And now he wants to portray this as protecting the Constitution. What part, buddy? Point to me in the Constitution where where it says the vice president shall preside over a joint session on the. I mean, he's ridiculous. And I, I know you and I have talked about it. Obviously, I'm getting worked up because I have seen how his delay of releasing that memo saying he did not think he had the constitutional authority to do what John Eastman had suggested or recommended in his memo, I've seen firsthand how that infuriated people who really believed, I think, you know, they shouldn't have naively believed that Mike Pence actually could do something or was going to do something. He hinted that he was going to do something. Remember that speech where he's like, you know, this Wednesday, we're going to have our day. We're going to have a chance to. And then he didn't. And I've seen how that inflamed certain defendants who then posted videos talking about Pence being a traitor. It's a, that was used as evidence against people. So well, he had he plenty of time. People. Right. And he had plenty of time to make his case. Right. Like if he really thought that if he really felt that he that he was defending the Constitution, he had at least two days to come out and like make his case and say, I'm not doing it. I know I'm right. And here's why I'm right. He could have done that, you know, and let that stand or fall, you know, based on someone's evaluation. I do think it's odd that people are supposed to believe that no matter what happens in the state, the vice president is just like an empty vessel to rubber stamp it. You know, like whatever the state say happened, 
where they said, oh, we just counted all the votes. We just, you know, threw a coin up and, and chose our electors. And the vice president's like, okay, fine. That's fine. I'm, right. I mean, that's what we're also being asked to believe. So I just think Mike Pence has a lot of chutzpah running for president after what he did, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, it's the go- the balls on someone <laughs> who, who can do that. Anyway, so the debate was, eh, let's talk about Trump's interview with Tucker, which I also watched. That was interesting. And that wasn't really substantive. It was like open kind of Trump open mic night, you know, that he just right. kind of does his <laughs> jazz odyssey. For those, of, for those of you who watch Steph's Final Tap, it's like a jazz odyssey, you know, he just kind of talks. Um, I thought it was it was interesting. Um, <clears throat> Tucker asked him some good questions, I thought. And, you know, you get Trump's Trump's answer. Kind of what do you think of the interview, Julie? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was, you're right. It's like a back and forth between friends. Um, I thought it was his answer about Jeffrey Epstein was funny that he thought he really did kill, did himself. kill himself. Not that he was offed. <laughs> and I think Tucker was even surprised by that. Um, I will say if he had been on the debate stage, obviously he would have mopped the floor with everyone. But and look, I've got plenty of criticism against uh, for Donald Trump. I know you do, too. But he looked good to me, like he was energetic. He's funny. Let's talk. go back to the, the people on that stage on Wednesday night are totally humorless. There's not one. And that's another way to connect with people. Right. And I think that's another thing. Reason why Ron DeSantis is failing. They're not funny. Like they don't come up. With, I mean, Chris Christie actually was the only one I think who got off a couple of funny lines, even though he's horrible. But. <laughs> They're not they're not funny. They're not enjoyable people. They all are like maudlin and and even Vivek, I think for his energy, he he's not I don't think he's in like humorous. Yeah. People I, want that. And well, Trump was, was really back to like was, his old self. Yeah. Like funny and he he looked, I think, pretty relaxed. And of course he's talking to Tucker, but I, I was surprised, I guess, at how good he looks considering everything that he's going he's through. been going through. There was a point when I, I actually laughed out loud. There was one thing I really do like about Trump, and it has to do with the same thing I mentioned about Vivek, is about how he just cuts to the chase and right. says, things, th- says things straight out. And when he was talking about the DOJ, and he was like, <laughs> these people are animals. Like, just, I can't remember the phrase he used, but he was like, these people are demented animals. And it's just, that is why people like Trump, is because That's everybody right. knows that. Everybody right. knows that. It reminds me of when he talked about, I think it was... um. Suleimani, then we killed <laughs> Trump like goes, a dog. He died like a dog. I like, like a dog. Right. He's he he like crying <laughs> in the last moments of his life for mercy. Just the way he talks about it. People really like that since we're in an era of just walking on eggshells from all right. this like cancel culture and in general, just the culture of politicians where they're so scared about what to say, you know, right. they, they don't want to um, say anything that might they might be held account for, you know, like deliver on. So they speak vagaries. People are so thirsty for decisiveness. So when Trump goes, the DOJ are like demented animals. I just, you know, I literally laughed out loud. I, I mean, it really is one of the things I do like about Trump. And I think it's one of the things everybody likes about Trump. So that was my happy moment. And we are almost at our hour. So, Julie, do we have an 80s update? Like, Oh, God. I, I, 
I know. Let did me forget it. Get my favorite account. Let's see. I did see something earlier in the week where I was like, oh, I might have been like a dirty dancing. Um, I have something. To, I'll cover you. Oh, good. You. All right. You please let me cover That's you. So, okay. August 22nd, 1988, one of the greatest albums that has ever been recorded. And I will die on this hill was released. And that album is nothing shocking by Jane's addiction. Absolutely. One of the greatest albums start to finish. Okay. You can over and over again. Okay. Absolutely was released. I felt very old. Um, I know that album by heart. Uh, such a great album. Again, Jane's Addiction, nothing shocking. Um, I, I'm trying to think if I saw Okay, any... I'm going to I'm going to revisit that one. I I oh, don't recall it's certainly nothing I've l- listened to in the past 30 years, but um <laughs> I will visit your recommendation. I I will Such revisit that. They're one of my favorite bands of all time. They're just a great band. Um so yeah, all right. Well, so, so it was our... yes, 1987 this week. Dirty Dancing was released and still one of the cheesiest movies of all time. And still like iconic people still like reenact the dance, you know, with between Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze. Um, I I heard that they actually hated each other on the set. I mean, because they they had a lot of chemistry. I mean, the movie was very popular and I've heard she was, she's wretched. I think really? I heard she was wretched. Yeah. Interesting. Her father is very famous. He's the very famous actor, Joel Gray, who starred in Cabaret. Um, oh, wow. I, yeah, but I was surprised. You were always surprised when you hear that people on a movie set hate each other because they seem to, you know, again, like in Dirty Dancing, they had a lot of chemistry. They seemed it wasn't implausible, right, what was happening. So I don't know. Um, all right. So there's our happy hour. Are we going to be here next week, Julie? Liz, I'm not sure. Um, I'm actually, as you know, and I'm excited. I'm going to get to see you next week. Yay. I'm co- going to D.C. next week um, for to witness something very tragic. And uh, it will be hard to watch. And that will be the sentencing of the five Proud Boys who are convicted for of seditious conspiracy. One off the hook, but still uh, DOJ, Matthew Graves is asking for up to 33 years in prison for a few of them. So um, so I'm going to be attending those uh, hearings on Tuesday, the sentencing on Tuesday and Wednesday. So and going back home on Thursday. So if we are, Maybe 50, it will be a Friday. It, it, it will be a Friday recording, but I might have to just detox after that. So. I have a quick question on that. So once they're sentenced, can they then appeal? Yes. So there will be immediate appeals filed. I've talked to one of the defense attorneys and you can't appeal a federal sentence until you're sentenced. So they will file those appeals. Interestingly, too, the appeals for the two men convicted at the retrial in the Whitmer fednapping hoax, those appeals were filed last week, too. Also interesting. I'm trying to get to those as well. Um, but yes, there will be uh, uh, appeals. So I'm expecting Judge Tim Kelly, the Trump appointed judge who is probably as bad as Beryl Howell and Tanya Chutkin uh, overseeing this case. I'm sure he will throw the book at them and it's going to be really tragic. Also, can I give a shout out to my uh, first yes. piece on Real Clear Investigation? Yes. Yay. Julie, Julie has joined the Real Clear family, of which I am also a part of. 
So, so happy to have her. We're sisters again. Yep. So it's a deep dive into Tanya Chutkin and her outrageous inflammatory hyperbolic statements in court about Donald Trump, January 6th, the 2020 election. I poured through thousands of pages of records for the cases that she's handled. So I would point people to my piece on Real Clear Investigations. Check that out. All right. I'm going to link that in the show notes along with Jason's information, too. So you can find out how to follow him on Twitter and his organization. So thank you for tuning in. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes, Happy Hour with Julian Liz, and we may or may not see you next week. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julian Liz. We'll see you next week.